Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. What is capitalism? Like at its core, what is it really about? Capitalism is defined as an economic system in which the means of production and private property are owned and controlled by private owners for the uses of making a profit. The making of profit via ownership, like owning a factory or owning a house and being a landlord. A small group vis-a-vis a large group. You first have to ask what's the definition of capitalism? And I think it, it changes depending on who, you, what your positions are, what your ideology is. Capitalism, it depends more on, on what you can achieve and not about what the states want you to do. People have opportunity to earn lots of money. Capitalism requires people to be exploited. We literally were out in the field as products. Where do we think capitalism came from? Welcome to Notes from America with Kai Wright. I'm Noelle King. I'm filling in for Kai today, and I'm glad you're here. I'm the host of a show called Today Explained. It's a daily news podcast and radio show that's produced by Vox, and I've just wrapped up a big series called Blame Capitalism. That's what we're going to talk about today, capitalism. This is our economic system. We all live with it. We all work within it. But do we understand it, and do we love it? or hate it. I got interested in this six years ago. I was an economics reporter for both NPR and Marketplace, but I never once used the word capitalism on air. And then in the summer of 2017, I heard someone use that word in a way that really hit me. Now, that person was Vincent Cunningham. He's a staff writer and a critic at The New Yorker, and he's with me in the studio today. Vincent, thanks for coming in. Hey, it's so great to be with you. You know, I wonder if you remember this. It was a live taping of the Nod podcast. It was here at the Green Space at WNYC. You were talking about Jay-Z's new record, new at the time, 444, and you said that you and other writers saw an economic message in that album. Financial freedom, my only hope. Living rich and dying broke. I bought some artwork for one million. Two years later, that worth two million. Okay, now that we've heard it, I feel silly asking, but what is the economic message? What were you responding to? I was responding to things like that, you know, um, that the implicitly, I think the message of this song, the story of OJ is like, um, financial freedom, learning about uh, businesses and financial literacy and real estate is another big thing, uh, I think very problematically in this song, um, that this is the way forward. This is like sort of the the liberatory message that Jay-Z brings. This is what's going to um, help the race and the furtherance of the race, like led, led by a sort of uber 
capitalist like himself, hmm. who can, first of all, buy a painting for one million. He makes it sound so easy. Super easy. Yeah. I mean, all you have all to he, do is be Jay-Z. Got to start. The first step in his messages, <laughs> have a lot of money. Be a millionaire. And then, yeah. I mean, at the time, what really hit me was you said, I don't think capitalism is the answer for black people. And that was a moment where I was suddenly hearing capitalism. And I said, okay, wait a second. Yeah. This is a big statement. What did you mean? Um, first of all, I was just so flattered to to know that my comment had. In, it's like you know how Helen is the face that launched a thousand ships. I oh, felt yeah. like the big mouth that launched a, a audio series. Thank you very much. There you go. Um, I take I think capitalism to mean a system where not that commerce doesn't happen between willing individuals that you know say hey would you like this here's my price, but that a whole governmental system like the one that we live under is in thrall totally to private interests. Mm. I think, I mean, recently we learned that Elon Musk has satellites that can determine America's military aims in Ukraine vis-a-vis Russia. That's capitalism. The fact that, like, some guy who is a menace on Twitter Mm. has that much power because of his private ownership of a business um, that that makes satellites. Mm. That is, I think, um, not a liberatory system for anywhere. It, it, it promises very high highs, but it leaves the floor, I think, uh, where it is. And most of us, I mean, frankly, most of us are on the floor. This is the thing about capitalism right. is there are these vast inequalities, especially these days. So, Vincent, after I heard you say that, I, I was hit. I was struck. I went to my colleagues at Planet Money, an economic show on NPR, and I said, guys, we are not talking about capitalism, but people in the culture are. This is big. I was so excited. (laughs) And my colleagues who were white gentlemen in their 40s and 50s were like, no, that's just how college kids always talk, right? That's yeah. College kids are always, like, dismissive of capitalism. Sure. Famously, you are not a college kid. Famously. You are, you are a staff writer <laughs> at The New Yorker magazine. You had an understanding, an understanding of capitalism that they didn't. Where do you think, and you've laid out what sure. it is, where do you think it comes from? I think for my generation, especially, living through the Great Recession of 2008, I mean, uh, the movements that grew out of that again here's capitalism uh, uh, uh not the not the fact that there are banks but that banks can ruin the economy and then be the only ones that are built back up by the government right um then the movements that came out of that uh occupy wall street um then you kind of move forward especially to the 2016 election i think bernie sanders uh, campaign had a lot to to do with this and you know i will i will admit to our readership and to um the 40 year old dismissors of this uh <laughs> this way of speaking that like you know in 2017 is probably when i joined dsa I, i'm a member of the democratic socialists of america um and i think a lot of people in my age cohort i identify as an elder millennial um started to investigate this wreckage of those past I guess, call it five, six, seven years between 09 and that campaign and wonder, was there something bigger past sort of the immediate exigencies of the moment of politics that was sort of structurally leading us down this path? You know, I'm I'm also an old millennial. I think I'm about four years older than you. Mm-hmm. And I was eight years old when the Berlin Wall fell, mm-hmm. right? I remember I was sitting in the back of my mom's car. I was riveted to the radio because the man on NPR, who is usually so calm, was like yelling. He was like, <laughs> Checkpoint Charlie's coming down. And I'm like, I dropped my book. I'm leaning in. I'm like, what is up with this man? I want to do that. And I did. But but as an old millennial, I am convinced that part of this is generational. And that if you remember the Berlin Wall, what you also remember is the threat of communism, right? Mm-hmm. This was a very real thing. The West is convinced that communism is the ultimate evil. Both of these systems 
want to be the only system. And so I think some of the legacy in the older millennial Gen X and older mind is there was a time when there there was a thing that was much worse than capitalism for humanity, and that was communism. Now, some people will take issue with that, and I understand it. But I wonder if you think that this might be generational, if you feel there are generational differences as a late 30-something. I I imagine that there there definitely are, but of course there have always been, you know, once— as as I think there's like a sort of emphasis on people that are sort of um, newly energized socialists or whatever of like, you got to do your reading. You find out that mm. there are p- many people older than us. Not long ago, we lost Mike Davis, a, a wonderful writer who lays these things out very clearly in terms of Los Angeles and things like this. Um, that there has always been a remnant of people that weren't necessarily uh, totally felled argumentatively by uh, the anti-communism of uh, the sort of post-war era. And certainly, you know, I grew up in the 90s where famously history was over and had ended. Famously, um, yeah. So like, yeah, and I I will admit that I was not exposed to those arguments. And I think that is a generational fact. Hmm. Mike Davis, the author of City of Courts. Yes. Great book about Los Angeles. Listeners, pick it up. If you haven't haven't read it, it's it's really telling. And we want to hear from you. We want to hear if capitalism is working for you, why or why not? How has it changed over time? Vincent, where do you see it in the culture? Where do you see the critiques of capitalism in theater, in movies, in music? I think it's really deeply baked in. I think, you, first of all, one thing that is um, so clear, um, not only in sort of the sort of political scene, but also in culture and the arts, is there's so many plays that have sort of a um, a union background to them. Uh, Dominique Morisseau, the playwright, who I really admire, has a play called Skeleton Crew. That's all about, it, it actually happens in 2008, which is like, I think, again, ground zero for some of this generational upheaval or whatever. Um, and it's sort of the the back room of a, a factory in Detroit and all of the sort of, the, the wreckage that's happening. And, you know, um, and one answer to whatever we want to call a sort of monolith that is capitalism is, is, labor is organizing as people um, trying to raise a floor instead of break through a ceiling or, or whatever. Hmm. Um, and so I think that's been a big thing. The, the sort of what people, a lot of my friends have been calling hot union summer that we've oh, just yeah. lived through. Has There's been a corollary to that in the arts. I have a friend who every time he goes and sees all of the Marvel movies and he knows that I'm doing this series and every time he sees a Marvel movie, he's like, Noel, I'm telling you, there is anti-capitalist sentiment baked into these big blockbusters and it's hysterical. Now, here's an interesting thing. I didn't embark on this series because I think that capitalism is evil or the worst thing ever. As far as I can see, for this country, capitalism may be what we have. We may have to work within it. I have been lucky. I had student loans, but I managed to pay them off after a decade. Mm -hmm. I did manage to buy a small house in Washington, D.C. It's not a very nice house, but like it's mine. (gasps) And so capitalism, in a lot of ways, it is working for me. I am wondering, before we go to break— do you feel you're 38, 39 years old? Has capitalism worked for you throughout your life? Largely, yes. Mm. Um, and I think that that isn't um, a badge of any necessary honor for me. I'm, you know, uh, for many reasons, right? Like, uh, I got some very important educational opportunities uh, at a very important time when I was 11 or 12 years old. Um, And, you know, a a story of class mobility probably describes me Mm. sort of growing up in the sort of paycheck to paycheck working classes and being in some vague middle class thing now, you know, Um, uh, bougie Brooklyn or whatever, you you know. Um, But 
I had a pretty, just for example, I had a pretty serious life event earlier this year that made me all of a sudden not have healthcare. So like certain things are working for me and certain things I, you know, can shock you into a realization that they're working on the edge of a cliff, right? Mm. Um, and I, I think there's never a, 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 a total working or not working. And it's also just not satisfying to have something that's working for you and not for many Everybody of the people that else. you love and yeah. know. All right, we're going to take a quick break. That was a great answer. Up next, an economist is going to enter the chat and we're going to take more calls. Stick with us. Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments about what you're listening to, we at the show would love to hear from you. Here's how. First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. Second, you can send us a voice message. Just go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button a little bit down the page that says start recording. Finally, you can message us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at Notes with Kai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Welcome back to Notes from America with Kai Wright. I'm Noelle King, host of Today Explained. It's a daily news podcast that also airs on NPR stations across the USA, and I'm filling in for Kai today. We are talking about capitalism this hour. With me, New Yorker staff writer and critic Vincent Cunningham. And Kirsten Monroe is joining us now. She's a professor of economics at the New School. Kirsten, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Why did you become an economist? Well, I kind of grew up in a punk rock scene on the West Coast of the U.S. And in that particular scene, it was very political. And kind of knowing about the economy and politics made you cool. Hmm. And so it was something that I started reading about. And we'd go to book fairs for fun as punk rockers in, in California. And so then when I got to college, it seemed like economics was a totally reasonable thing to study and I think even especially reasonable because I was very lucky that at my college, almost all of the faculty were women. This is extraordinary. I mean, it's extraordinary enough. I covered economics for a long time, and I'm very well aware it is a very male-dominated field. And I wonder sometimes about whether the barrier to entry for women is not you don't have the grades, you don't have the interest, but it is everybody's a man. And I experience this myself when I speak as a woman about economists, men are tempted to write me off. Well, I mean, I had an interesting thing happen to me once in a bar where I was talking to a, a man and he was saying something silly about the economy and I told him he was wrong. And I said, no, I'm an economist. And hmm. then he hit me in the face. Oh, oh, dear. So I think it's a real thing <laughs> that you're referring to. You know, this is a real thing out in the culture that people are very threatened by women economists. Incredible. And and you recovered okay? Yeah, I dumped his drink on the ground. Amen. Well, there you go. And we've got a caller on the line. We've got Joel on the line. Go ahead, Joel. Hi. Thanks, Noel. Yeah, today I just had the occasion of meeting a very well-spoken 37-year-old man who is stuck in an $18-an-hour job in non-union uh, Home Depot. And he'd love to go to college, 
about making $2,000 a month, he can't afford to. I told him to look into financial aid. But um, he doesn't have a car, and he has a very good head on his shoulders. And I thought, and, and then I asked him what his politics were. And he said, well, I don't really follow politics, and I don't believe in either party. I said, oh, hmm. really? Um, okay, because I, I tend to be a Democrat. Um, I said, but I understand that, because the the Republicans are hopeless, and the mainstream Democrats hardly ever talk about raising the minimum wage or something like 20 or $25 an hour. Bernie does, AOC does, but... Um, and then I realized, of course, what I'm dealing with is a capitalist system in which the moneyed interests have captured the reins of power and bought them all. Well, so yeah, I mean, the, Joel, it's a good point. You know, we, we say one of the foundations of capitalism is free markets. But then you look around and you say, well, okay, are we really in a free market system? And Kirsten, I wonder if I can throw that over to you. I mean, he's making a good point about certain certain interests being captured, certain interests capturing parts of the economy that are not as free as, say, Milton Friedman, the great libertarian, I'm a fan of his, as he wanted them to be. He believed, you know, everything out in the marketplace would solve itself. And when you are in 2023 looking around, that seems like a bit of a myth that we really are in a free market system. Absolutely. A free market is something that has never existed anywhere. And I think it's like a mythical creature like Santa Claus. And so kind of keeping that in mind, if a market is just exchanging stuff for money and money for stuff, a free market means you can exchange money for stuff with no barriers at all on doing that. Um, and so that has just not really ever existed in any place. Mm. Gregory is on the line. Let's hear from Gregory. Yes, uh, I'm a musician, uh, a pianist. And uh, so my economy is really pretty close to the ground because my fees for playing piano are usually direct from institutions and schools and that sort of thing. But my career would be just immensely more easier, more successful if we had genuinely state-supported arts. And the way that ties into capitalism is that, of course, we know capitalism forces artists to, to, to compromise the quality of their work to create art that happens to fill whatever the latest uh, popular trend is. It has nothing to do with, with arts or the, the real human needs. For instance, uh, Maslow and his uh, housing, food, health, education, hmm. and we could include the arts. So capitalism really has never worked for me because we're right on the periphery of, of this of this economy. Yeah. L listen, I hear you. And I want to throw this over to Vincent Cunningham because he is a critic of theater. And I wonder, Vincent, in your time, I, I don't want to say criticizing sure. theater, in your time covering <laughs> theater, do you feel like this is a complaint you hear a lot, that the system that we have does not make room for art and artists? Uh, it's a it's a huge concern right now. We see in the wake of the pandemic, a lot of theater companies are really going through hard times, shortening seasons, hmm. laying off staff, things like this. And um, during the pandemic, I actually wrote a, a, a small bit about the sort of uh, post-World War II uh, FDR-led federal theater project, that there was that you know, there was a, a loosening of this sort of um, laissez-faire approach to the arts, and there were there were state-sponsored, not just federal theater, the Federal Writers Project. There were artists that we all know and love whose work was uh, made possible by the state in a way that would seem, uh, I think you get, get a lot of sort of uh, epithets of communism thrown at you if uh, in a sort of, uh, in the mainstream, you you made this a, a big plank of your your. your uh, politics. I mean, this is a really interesting point, Kirsten. We were going to talk a bit about the history of capitalism. And it does. It begins with Adam Smith, invisible hand, laissez-faire, the market will sort itself out. Then World War II happens, and suddenly it becomes clear, oh dear, 
the entire world is in a mess. And then it seems we reconsider capitalism in part because of a gentleman named John Maynard Keynes. Can you talk about how after World War II, the mindset shifts to, wait, should government be involved here? Well, I think we can think about that period, and people call it the golden age of capitalism, as this very specific and very short-lived period where governments in kind of the quote-unquote West are trying to save capitalism from itself. And the reason they're doing that is because they saw it self-destructing right before World War II. We had kind of nationwide strikes, massive economic crisis, and they also want to save capitalism from actually existing socialism. Hmm. Um And so I think, you know, during this period, we have decreasing inequality, decreasing poverty, very high rates of unionization, very high top marginal tax rates, personal income, corporate income, um, and really active government involvement trying to smooth out kind of the boom-bust cycle that's inherent to capitalism, and kind of a new association for the first time with kind of middle-class American prosperity and capitalism Um, that hadn't existed before. One of the things I learned while working on this series, I mean, I was aware of the golden age of capitalism as a thing, and I was also aware that the golden age of capitalism excluded many people, right? If you were a black person in America, if you were a woman in America, if you were a gay person in America. And so I looked at what started to happen in the 1960s when groups that had been left out of the golden age started to make demands of businesses. We think of the 60s as everybody's out in the streets, everybody's protesting, but in fact, there were a group of Black residents of the city of Rochester, Rochester was dominated by a company called Eastman Kodak. It treated its workers wonderfully, cradle-to-grave benefits, vacations, tuition, anything you could wish, but it didn't hire black residents. And so black residents of that city started to protest outside of the shareholders' meetings, not in the streets, but outside of the shareholders' meetings, and say, this company is doing it wrong. We are a big percentage of Rochester, New York, and you don't hire us. And Eastman Kodak, in fact, backed down. And what I learned was that this kind of opened the door for many different types of people who were being excluded from the golden age to get in companies' faces and say, the purpose of a company is to engage with us. The purpose of a company is to give back to society, to take care of its people, to take care of the environment. And I just, that was not something I ever learned in school, Kirsten. Well, there's a lot of things about the economy. I think they want to make sure people don't learn in school. Um. <laughs> I mean, it's a good point. I um, There's a, there's a, a, a twist to that story, a, a really interesting twist. And I'm not going to characterize it as unfortunate, But I think it is. Okay, I'll say it's unfortunate. So in 1970, there comes a pivot point, right? Regular people are agitating for companies. You need to do this. You need to do that, right? The New York Times hires uh, or gives an opportunity to Milton Friedman, a very influential economist, to write an essay on what is the purpose of a corporation? What should a corporation really do? Friedman sits down and he pens this very dense essay that essentially says the purpose of a company is just to make money for its shareholders. All of this stuff about social responsibility is nonsense. It is divisive. If companies start taking positions on social justice or social injustice, all of a sudden it gets very confusing. This, for me, had echoes of what happened earlier in the year when Dylan Mulvaney, the trans influencer, was sent some cans of beer by a big company, right? And there was this this transphobic backlash. And Dylan Mulvaney is suddenly, you know, a young woman facing all of this hatred. And I'm imagining the ghost of Milton Friedman looming over it all and saying, guys, I told you this This is what I told you. But what's really interesting, Kirsten, is that it's an essay that goes on to be enormously influential. Something happens with that essay. The purpose of a company is just to make money for shareholders. That turns it into gospel. Where do we go from there? So I think the thing about that essay that's so interesting is that Milton Friedman is fundamentally not wrong. 
right? The purpose of a business in capitalism is to earn profits for our shareholders. That's its only purpose. And businesses are actually forced by the rules of capitalism, how it works, that they are compelled to continually grow, continually drive down costs, make profits, reinvest those profits forever and ever and ever. And by doing this, that's actually what keeps capitalism going. So I think, you know, it seems strange for me to say that Milton Friedman is right, but that's actually how it works. That Mm. is what businesses have to do. And maybe, Vincent, to your point, yeah. this is the problem with the system, right? Yeah, and it, 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 it makes things that seem very solid, like the amazing sort of era of corporate benefits, as you say, cradle to grave, right? It, the moment somebody realizes, oh, we don't have to do that, mm-hmm. and in fact, it might auger against um, this the profit motive, then it's, you shed that away. So there's not one stable moment in capitalism. There's no permanent golden age because it's always moving towards something else and moving towards something else. I would say that to our our listeners in New York, it's like um, you don't have to stop to care about the environment. And all of a sudden your city and much of which is on an Island is now flooded. And who, who's, who has to deal with that the most people who live in basement apartments that aren't coded, right? The the poor, I mean, the the people that, you know, I don't, Jay-Z is asking to go buy painting. There you go. People are being flooded in their homes. Yeah, as Um, we said earlier. And it just goes on and on like that. Listeners, we're taking your calls. We have got Miriam on the line. Miriam, go ahead. Oh, hey, thank you for taking my call. Yeah, I'm in my 70s, and capitalism is definitely not working for me. Because what's happening is, if I have to go into a nursing home, God forbid, uh, it's going to cost at least four thousand dollars a month. I don't have that kind of savings. I mean, people—if you feel that people end up in those homes for decades—I hope it will never happen to me. But if it does, I won't be able to pay for it. Which means that I have to reduce myself to absolute poverty. I have to have nothing in my bank account. I think I can have maybe two thousand a month, period, and then have no property. And then when everything is gone, everything has to be gone for six months. Then I can apply for Medicaid. And they would cover my nursing home costs. Hmm. And so my family would inherit nothing. And I would have nothing. And once I was in there, I would have no money to spend. If I wanted to buy a book, I couldn't buy a book because that would put me over the limit of, you know, how much money I was supposed to have on hand. I couldn't have enough money to buy a book. So, Miriam, so you're making a point. Situation. Yeah, I mean, what Miriam is talking about is the social safety net being incredibly afraid here, right? We expect there to be some help for the, from the government for people who are infirm, for people who are elderly, for people who are young and on their own. We expect that kind of social safety net. But in the United States, I think many people feel and have experienced it fraying out from under them. We're going to turn now to another listener. Himanshu is on the line. Himanshu, uh, hit us. What you got? Yeah, uh, so thanks for a very nice discussion. Uh, I come from India. I came here yeah, like 20 years ago. And the way I see comparing two economies uh, like India and U.S., uh, I would say capitalism has given us a lot. Like I'm talking to you uh, on a phone. There are two people in the middle. They took my call. They took my question. And I can put my view across. It's a result of capitalism. At the same time, I feel that uh, we need a representation of everybody in capitalism. Like, uh, even though I'm a man, I cannot say that I can understand the views of blacks or women or kids or old people. So they all have to equally represent themselves because only they can put their views. They can problem help in solving their problems. So we need a better representation. And I think we are at the right point where we can put our views and let it go through 
rules and regulations and, you know, make our lives better. All right. A somewhat optimistic view of capitalism when it is inclusive. Vanessa is on the line. Vanessa, go ahead. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. I'm in Chicago and capitalism is not working for me. Hmm. Echoing what many other callers said, the social safety net, like I'm on a critical juncture of my life where I'm possibly going to lose my job. And the only concern I have is I won't have health care and I have a chronic condition. I need my meds. I have hypertension. And it's just that's the only thing that, you know, I mean, I'll take a major pay cut, but the only thing that concerns me if any medical condition happens, I'll we'll just be completely set back. It'll just drain the, the savings that I have. And it's just that that kind of just precarious life. And mm-hmm. again, it's all about the haves and the have nots. The United States is a great medical system, but can you access it? So I just feel it's all about the haves and the have nots. So yeah, yeah, I can't afford that painting that Jay-Z says I can just get. <laughs> <laughs> I want to bring this back to our economist, Kirsten, because there is, I have heard baked into critiques of capitalism even among people who really think capitalism is the best system we've found so far, that a capitalist society is always going to have people down at the bottom. It's always going to have people who are like in the dregs of society. And I'm not using those words you know, just as an expression, but does capitalism create, perpetuate, and even demand this kind of inequality where we have a listener in Chicago and another listener, Miriam, saying, I just can't afford to live. Yeah, I, I think capitalism as a way of organizing production in society is defined by the existence of two groups, workers and business owners. One owns nothing, and the other controls everything we need to survive. Um, but for me, and I think I might be unusual in thinking this, the problem isn't inequality per se, but it's whether or not most people have enough things that they need to survive and not just survive, but flourish and achieve their human potential. So for me, it doesn't matter how rich the richest person is as long as everyone else is doing okay. And the flip side of that is that I think only changing the degree of wealth inequality is not enough to solve the larger problems with capitalism. Do you think there's a way, Kristen, to do capitalism better? And then, Vincent, I'm going to turn that question over to you. Mm-hmm. So I think you can imagine it as if you're living with a grizzly bear in your house. (laughs) But it was there when you moved in. And there are things you can do to kind of try to make it less like the bear is going to kill you and your family. But that risk is always there. And your life is probably going to be really stressful and chaotic. But you're kind of used to it because there's this bear in your house and you don't know any different. And what I mean by this metaphor is that it's ridiculous for me to say that there's nothing we can do to reduce this incredible human suffering and environmental destruction that's created by capitalism, but there's still like an actual bear in our living room. Mm. And if you will kind of humor me and let me torture the metaphor for a tiny bit longer, this debate among economists is just around what best methods are for controlling the bear. Hmm. Or if we should even control it. But most economists aren't even thinking about whether or not we should be living with a grizzly bear in the first place. All right. Kirsten has bought you a little time, Vincent. We're going to go to a break. (laughs) Thank you. More coming up soon. More of your calls. Stick with us. We're happy to have you with us this evening. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birgit Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope 
of our history. I'm Jessica Bosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to Notes from America with Kai Wright. I am not Kai Wright. I'm Noelle King. I'm filling in for Kai today, and we are talking about capitalism, the system, the feelings about it, and the evolution of those feelings. We're joined by New Yorker staff writer and critic Vincent Cunningham and Kirsten Monroe, who is a professor of economics at the New School. We've got Dominic on the line. Dominic, go ahead. Oh, hi. Um, I This is a great show, and I appreciate it. And I um, I wanted to throw this in. Um, the IWW um, had the right idea. We need a massive strike. Um, to, to my own shame, my union, the PSC CUNY, did not strike and has not struck. We're not allowed to strike because of the Taylor um, law in New York. Um, but I think the one thing we could do with this bear, and I love that metaphor, although bears are not the problem, humans are, is... Um, <laughs> What we need is collective action. We need um, to, to for, we need to, I mean, the discussion usually on WNYC about unions is, is favorable, hmm. but there's a lot of pushback about collective action. There, there's the right wing push to take everything away. And one of the things they love to do is undermine the power of collective action. You've got that sociopath from, uh, um, from Florida, Tim Scott, who's talking about wanting to do a Reagan on, um, on striking workers, which he couldn't do um, because they're not federal workers. But anyway, but I it's, think, um, you're making a really good point. And I want to jump in here to talk about Ronald Reagan, because there was a moment in the late 70s and early 80s when Ronald Reagan cracking down on strikers was viewed by many Americans as the right thing to do, the best thing to do, the thing that was going to drag the economy out of this slump, out of this terrible situation that somehow unions had created. So what what Dominic is identifying is a swing back and forth from like the Keynesianism to the more neoliberalism. We've got Wendy on the phone now. Wendy, go ahead. Okay, I've got two points. Now, I know this uh, person in the economy has read this because I've read this and it's not even my field. Uh, like the late 1800s, it was in the law that a company had to, to make sure that they, they contributed to the public good. That's mm. point number one. Second point, we have feral capitalism. They have capitalism in Sweden, right? Okay, and they used to be Vikings. So you have to have a mix of the two. They have a social network. In fact, the whole, the whole stuff, all the stuff that was done uh, in, during um, the uh, Depression, that was some Scandinavians from Wisconsin who put in the, the Social Security and all that kind of stuff. They mm. worked with FDR to put all that stuff in in the New Deal. Yes, black people didn't get it. Women didn't get it. You know, all these people didn't get it. But that was the Swedish model that you take care of everybody. So it's not just capitalism. This is feral capitalism, F-E-R-A-L, like a wolf. Well, you're making a good point about the Scandinavian tradition. And for listeners who are interested, uh, look into it. In, in states like Wisconsin and Minnesota, there is a tradition of kind of progressive capitalism that did in many ways come over with people from Scandinavia. We have got Michael on the line. Michael, go ahead. Oh, thank you. Very interesting subject. Anytime capitalism comes up as a discussion, it always drives me crazy because I don't think that any of you guys are talking about capitalism itself. Hmm, I think what you're talking about is, and what you're talking about is greed. 
I, I think the idea of establishing a charge for a service and delivering the service and getting paid for it uh, comes with it the obligation to be fair about it. And I think that companies, yes, their obligation is to their stockholders, but their obligation is to their employees to turn out a good product, too. Well, what you're talking about is what was going on during the golden age of capitalism. I mean, what you're calling for is kind of a return to form. Vincent, before the break, I asked you, is there a way to do capitalism better? This actually strikes me as kind of an easy solution. The United States has has moved on in terms of demographics with minorities and women and LGBTQ plus people being included now. Why can't we all just be part of the golden age of capitalism the way it was in the 1950s? But let me ask you, what are your solutions? What do we do different? Well, you know, I think that um, there is a phenomenon that happens when we talk about, like, inclusive capitalism, that um, there's a philosopher, uh, his name is Olufemi Taiwo, he's brilliant, and he's got this book, it's called, uh, it's about elite capture, mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, we let more people into the room, but who who gets a voice? Like, the richest black person, or, like, the richest woman, the richest trans person. Yeah. And so, like, you can have an inclusive environment where you look like a Benetton ad, but not, but the, the, the interests of the masses are not ever represented in that room. And I think the antidote to that is collect. I think what we've seen over the past couple of years with sort of union activity being more and more, I mean, the UAW right now. Oh, yeah. This guy, uh, their leader, Sean Fine, is that the name of the... the, That's right. I mean, these beautiful speeches every time he speaks, I'm just like, amen. But um, we already have a model for, I think, what we need, which is that, you know, we we do have a democracy in terms of... where people, um, Himanshu mentioned this, like I can vo- I can call in and I can lend my voice to this conversation. Um, I think unions pro- promise democracy in the workplace. That mm. like you know everybody from the ground up. If I work here, I'm part of this system. It's not just the person that owns it who gets the final say. Like we all we all work here. We're all part of the the this enterprise, and we all sort of make it rise or fall together. So I think that's been really heartening. Mm. Democracy, if we can keep it. We've got a text here from a listener. They ask, does anyone believe that capitalism underdeveloped Black America specifically? So this is a really good question because in a purely capitalist society, we would not care about a person's race, right? We would want everybody to succeed. The invisible hand would be doing its job. And so what we'd be positing is that something outside of pure capitalism is responsible for the vast inequalities between black and white Americans. Kirsten, what do you think about this? Is this, was this done specifically? Was this done deliberately? Absolutely. I think capitalism can't be separated from racism because both capitalism's beginning and its continued existence is totally dependent on racism and maintaining inequality between these different groups. You know, capitalism begins with colonialism, enslavement, dispossession, and it never stops. Vincent, go ahead. Uh, Yeah, there's the... um the great writer and thinker, the late Cedric Robinson, whose whose term is racial capitalism, that these things are ultimately and fundamentally entwined, that the character character of of capitalism in the West is necessarily racist. Hmm. Um, And I think that uh, when you think about those things in tandem, that it's hard to, that you can't untangle those things. I think it clarifies a lot about um, the hope that as long as, if we could just stop being racist, then capitalism would be great. It's yeah. like, well, since, I mean, can you point to a, a moment of capitalism as it has been construed in our lifetimes and historical memory that hasn't included a racial element? I think the answer is probably no. And I think that is part of the reason why young people who feel themselves to be very progressive and have ha- actually seen things change in their lifetime I think that's one of the reasons that they really have targeted capitalism, that they're not just talking about racism or the environment. They're like, no, it is the whole system that we want to go out of. 
after. Excuse me. It's an interesting development. I feel like I'm seeing it among Gen Z in a way that it was not present among millennials outside of college campuses. I'm curious what you think. Kirsten, you teach Gen Z. What are they saying? What are you picking up? So I've kind of taught at a few different schools. I taught at a business school, and I would have students say to me, uh, point blank, I'm not a worker. I'm a job creator. Oh, um, and then, you know, I also have other students, not at the business school, who are very interested in understanding things like racial capitalism and these and these problems. And I think they're quite pessimistic about about the future. You know, they're concerned about global warming. Um, and I think I think they are feeling pretty bleak about things. Hmm. Vincent, what do you think? Does it matter that young people seem to be coalescing? I think it matters uh, hugely. And it's, I mean, to talk, we talked about this whole generational thing to begin with. I, everything that I've read suggests that even millennials are the first generation that seem to be getting, not getting more conservative as they age. Yes, this has right. been the American pattern, right? Um, but my daughter is a, is a Zoomer, um, and she's, uh, I, I think her politics are tremendous, and I'm heartened by her friends, and I can't wait for them to, 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 to see what they do. I think it matters a lot. Have you ever heard them talk about capitalism? The young folks? It's it's very much part of their lingo. It's like a, a precondition for the way they think. It's this not like is incredible. something that they added on at, at a certain point. It's like, I think, um, pretty baked in. I mean, even the kids that are, they're like, you know, in her high school, there were some conservative kids. They're like, you know, there's high school Republicans. But they started from the premise that they needed to defend capitalism as, a, as an idea. It wasn't like just the it's water just the in way which we they do swim. It. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is fascinating to me that because— when I was 15, 16, 17, it just was not the thing that we talked about. It just wasn't the thing that we talked about. Now, we've got a listener here who is identifying as a member of Gen Z. Shout out, Gen Z. <laughs> he watched his parents go from middle class and then really, really, really struggle. And I think that one of the things that becomes very clear in our society is that you can work yourself up, but then something like an illness or a job loss can have you back down in the dust. And I think that's why so many Americans feel so precarious. It's not just the system didn't work for me. The system, we've said earlier, the system did work for me. The system could very easily not work for me if I come down with an illness that my insurance doesn't cover or if my house floods, right? There are lots of things that could take me out of the middle class really, really easily. I wonder how you guys respond to the idea that it, it may seem like America is a country of the middle class, and for a long time it was, and it has been, but you can lose that status because of the way that we're set up. Yeah, I, um, I've i had this conversation a lot with some of the uh, international students that I teach. I, I teach a, a class on theater criticism at, at Columbia, and one of my students uh, is from Germany, and she's like, yeah, there's lots of great things about this country, but I've mm. never been more stressed out about healthcare in my life. You know, that uh, I, I have always lived with the idea that if I got sick or if I got hit by a taxi or whatever, um, I'd be okay. And now I'm thinking about health care and I'm thinking about, you know, the, it just seems like there is such a farther way to fall. Yeah. Um, that precarity, I think, is is truly unique to our system. Like, I, I, people, other people come here and they're like, wait, what? Other people, um, and not just Europeans, people from all over the world come here, and they're like, oh, I thought this was a good place to make it. I didn't realize that you guys were all living on a knife's edge. I want to throw this over to listener Joel. Joel, what do you have to tell us? Okay, so um, I'm actually from Wisconsin, even though I'm living in Montreal now, and I was I am a retired auto worker, member of UAW Local 438 in Milwaukee, and I lived through the entire um, destruction of basically American basic industry and watched how families were destroyed, how whole 
how my hometown was basically destroyed by deindustrialization, huh. all of which was facilitated by both political parties. And, and the Democrats cannot uh, claim innocence in this at all. And so one of my biggest concerns is, and the reason why I called, because I actually think this is a really great conversation, is how do you resist? And there, with the problem in the United States and in Canada, too, is that there is no real left anymore. You can forget about DSA, frankly. I mean, three of the DSA um, uh, Congress people basically uh, screwed the rail workers when they went on strike. Uh, I think it was earlier this year. What some of the t- callers talked about, like mentioning the IWW, which is really almost like Asian history, has, has some val- valuable lessons. And today's, today's upsurge of the new upsurge of the labor movement is a very encouraging sign. But there still is no political instrument that working people have in order to resist capitalism and the racism that it depends on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, what's happening and what I think that you know, the more intellectual side of the left needs to understand is that a lot of those working people who have been completely destroyed and alienated um, due to, you know, 30, 40 years of, of assault, you know, those people are turning to, a lot of them are turning to uh, Trump and the right wing. This Why? is a point, because yeah, this, so this is a point that I, I did want to make, and Joel, I thank you for bringing it up. This is... Um, In our series, we looked at when did Americans actually start using the word capitalism? We're all baked in it now, but there was a point when it happened. And when it happened was in 2009 when a CNBC personality, Rick Santelli, is responding to President Obama bailing out homeowners. And he says, all you capitalists, let's get together and start a tea party. And there you go. Capitalism, the word itself, enters the mainstream. Kristen, for you as an economist, I'm sure it's at the front of your mind. For me, as somebody who just covered economics, that was the moment where we started hearing people yell about capitalism and and. I think our politics from that point on, after the Tea Party, you have the emergence of Occupy Wall Street. These movements both take our politics in really interesting and even more extreme, even more extreme directions. And so when this, when the listener says there's no such thing as a real left anymore, I mean, it's a very, very interesting point. What might it look like if we were even more politically radical than we are, Kristen? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think the listener said that there's no real tool that workers have, and there absolutely is, and it's withholding their labor through a strike. Let me let me ask you both, because we're, we're sort of running low on time here, just a couple minutes left, what you think people can and should take away from discussions about capitalism. It is a big question. I should probably give you five minutes to think about it, but let me put you on the spot, Vincent. What do you want people to take away from a discussion like this? For me, I mean, you know, I... I am not an economist. I'm a I'm a writer who has thoughts. You mm-hmm. know? <laughs> Amen. But so but for me I think the big thing is um questioning when someone tells you that the answer to your problems is actually easy. Mm. When someone says, "Oh, you need to manage your money better or you need to uh learn how to invest or you need to on and on and on and on and on and on and and ask if maybe and I'm a big proponent of personal responsibility in mm. my private life. But maybe there's something Else afoot. Yeah. You know, maybe there's something else under your feet. Kirsten, what do you think? Well, I think what you're describing is the fact that capitalism as a way of organizing production is actually gaslighting everyone. And not only, you know, capitalism, but also economists are gaslighting everyone by saying, well, this is the best and only way we can do anything. This increases efficiency. Uh, if you do anything, if anything bad happens to you, it's your fault. And 
I guess what I would want people to take away from this is that I just have to believe that there's some other way of organizing production in our society that promotes human flourishing and well-being and doesn't involve oppression, exploitation, and environmental devastation. Hmm. I talked to an economist, Wendy Carlin, for this series, and she said we need a new ism. This is a very smart woman. She is very engaged. She's been teaching economics for years. She has a PhD. She's a commander of the Order of the British Empire in economics for her contributions. And she said we need a new ism. And I think that's some of what we've been hearing today. All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up for the day. Thank you so much to Vincent Cunningham. He's a critic and staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. And thank you to Kristen Monroe, who's a professor of economics at The New School. Thanks also to all of our listeners who called in. You can keep talking talking to us, just go to notesfromamerica.org and look for the green record button to leave us a message. Kai will be back next week. He will be listening to all of your messages, and I know that he will really appreciate them. So thank you to everyone who called in today. We had some really great ideas and a great conversation. Notes from America is produced by WNYC Studios. We have theme music and sound design by Jared Paul. Matthew Morando directed the live show today. Thank you so much, Matthew. Special thanks to John Ahrens of Today Explained. John composed that music we sampled today. Everybody's talking about capitalism. Thanks, John. The rest of the team here at Notes for America includes Regina Tahir, Karen Frillman, Florencia Gonzalez, Guerra Garcia, Kusha Navidar, David Norville, Rahima Nasa, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Our executive producer is the great Andre Robert Lee. Thanks for everything, Andre. I'm Noelle King. You can find me on Twitter at Noelle King. Thanks to everyone for a great conversation going into the week ahead and take care out there on Monday. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.